950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. I'm Todd Mickelson. I'm sitting in again today for Brett Johnson for today's FYI Politics this Thursday, December the 3rd. I'm looking at my watch and it says the 2nd um, because my watch thinks that every month has 31 days and I'm Instead of changing it, what I, knowing me, I'll probably go through the whole month just knowing that my watch is wrong on the date and that it's one day later. So it's actually the third. My watch says the second. Anyway, let's get into um, the show. I'd like to talk about a few things. There's a lot going on. Um, one uh, thing, we just heard a news segment with, with uh, Donald Trump talking. Uh, we'll be so glad to never hear this voice again. Very soon, very, very soon. That's good news. Um, there, there are a lot of copycat things going on, though. I'd like to talk about a little later. Uh, Steve Simon, our Secretary of State here in Minnesota, made some comments on some pushback. The pushback on the election here in Minnesota is sort of a copycat of what's been going on nationally. And a little bit of an explosion happened at the beginning of this week. I want to talk about that later. I'd also like to talk about some terminology. Some things happened um, between Representative Ilhan Omar and President Obama, actually, a couple days ago, talking about some of uh, the ways that uh, Democrats name things. And things like that. Um, also some fun stuff maybe at the end. We'll see how much we can get into this. I, I would like to talk – oh, one, one thing too is um, a, some, a, a, a subject that was big about three or four weeks ago was the uh, Supreme Court. And I believe that's going to be a big subject again in another couple of months. And I'd like to talk about that too. But right now – Let's talk about rural support. What happened in Minnesota especially where outstate Minnesota used to be the stomping grounds of the DFL and now that's where Trump got his votes in the state. He still lost by seven percentage points. But the last few years of what's been going on in uh, farm country in Minnesota, uh, the for, for one thing, farmers are just really hurting and I'm talking about family farms, not – obviously corporate farms. But um, the family farms back in the 1950s when uh, United States family farms were really strong, a farmer would keep about 50 percent of whatever, you know, the food dollar, whatever they were selling, their commodities. They'd keep about 50 percent of it and that's gone down to about 15 percent today from 5-0 to 1-5. And that's because the corporations control more and more of the agriculture business. They, uh, every, from everything, seed and fertilizer and grain that the farmers need to buy and also the milk and meat that farmers sell, they just suck the profits in, instead of giving farmers a fair price or even a fair shot at the market. The, the small farmers are just shut out. And when small farms try and expand their operations, they have to go in more debt, and, and so many of them are already drowning in debt. The, uh, Obama, when he ran, he made some promises uh, to basically to challenge the rise of agribusiness monopolies. But once he got to be president, his Department of Agriculture balked a lot on that, and, and they didn't really enforce what they had been talking about with the anti-monopoly rules. 
uh, anti-monopoly basically being you know the large corporations coming in and buying up more and more farmland, um, starting stockyards. You know, would basically it turned into uh, the farmers selling at the market in their small town, providing the town and themselves for with food to by the 1970s and 80s. It had to be, you know, hundreds of thousands of cows to provide enough meat for a lar- another large corporation like McDonald's. So uh, things really got out of hand starting in the late 70s throughout the 80s and, and even still today. Another thing that uh, the Obama administration kind of – the, the um, Agriculture Department kind of fell off on was the country of origin labeling, something you might remember from, man, I don't know, many years ago now, 10 or more years ago. It would have allowed independent farmers and ranchers to better compete with the consolidated meat industry and because it, it, they were going to have labels of um, – uh, the place of origin, so you could choose you could you could see what was produced by a local family farm as opposed to a large corporate farm, and then most people would choose obviously to buy the small family farm. Uh, that was a thing that was going to happen years ago. It never did. And now the Democrats – and this goes into our, our next segment about messaging. Democrats just don't seem to be able to talk about it very well. They kind of say that uh, the rural voter votes against their own self-interest and they're voting the wrong way. And it makes the – you know, it's kind of offensive actually to to uh, the the rural farmer – uh, in Minnesota, you know, it's and it makes the the Democrats sound arrogant, and um, it's not an easily forgotten damaging message. And then, uh, you know, the the vacuum then is filled with me- uh, filled by the other side with messaging, and uh, that's basically you know fear mongering. So now you have um, everything kind of upside down. The Democrats have they, – they say they have plans all the time. But what they really need what, – what people in rural Minnesota really want to hear is that they're really going to fight for them. And uh, that's where I want to remind everybody that the, the letter F in DFL stands for farmer. Back in 1947, the, well, there were, there were very strong uh, – uh, the the Democratic Party was very strong in the 1940s, obviously, and also there were two separate parties that were pretty strong in Minnesota: the Farmer Party and the Labor Party. And in 1947, Hubert Humphrey decided to consolidate those three parties. So we had the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. It became one party instead of three separate parties, and became extremely powerful in Minnesota, and uh, did a lot of good. It, by the 1970s, the DFL was was just completely in charge of the state, and they were an example for the country in legislation having to do with education uh, and a lot of things. And since then, um, you know, it kind of makes you wonder why are farmers not on the side of the Democrats when the F in DFL in Minnesota stands for farmers. <clears throat> Another problem going on out in uh, in rural places, especially now with uh, the pandemic going on, is suicide is really prevalent out in in uh, you know the. People are very distraught financially, and then the pandemic comes to make things worse. Suicides really risen a lot in rural Minnesota and rural uh, in the United States, and also profit-based healthcare really does not work in out in uh, small towns and and rural Minnesota. 
you have hospitals closing down. Um, uh, earlier this year, there were hospitals closing down so that uh, if you basically if you lived in Grand Marais and and all of a sudden you know you you're due to have your baby and all of a sudden it looked like you were going into labor, you had to get down to Duluth and that's a long ways to go because there's basically no hospitals that can handle a lot of things in in a lot of parts of rural United States and Minnesota. So all of these things are are a, a problem and. Uh, I'd like to point out that the DFL actually does – maybe they don't know how to talk about it that well, but they actually do have good things for uh, rural Minnesota. If you remember, in 2014, we had what was called the Broadband Task Force, and it was put into place by the DFL who had control of, of the Senate and the uh, House and the governorship in Minnesota. and. They came up with a study that came up with a budget for how to spread broadband to all the nooks and crannies of Minnesota so that if you lived in a rural town, very small town, you still had the same opportunity that people like me. I'm a small business owner and my business is built completely on the internet. I, I came up with this contraption that I patented. I developed other products and we sell it. Worldwide, but without the internet, we would have never even gotten up and running. I, I would have never been able to build this business without the internet. So, if this broadband uh, would be spread everywhere, of course, then other people, you know, there are people who live in outstate Minnesota who have just as good or a better idea than what I had, and it would level the playing field for them to be able to start their business. And, of course, now we're learning with the pandemic. A lot of schools are closed and kids have to learn at home. A lot of kids can't do that in outstate Minnesota because they don't have broadband. They don't have uh, access to broadband. The DFL, their their task force came up with a number of $100 million Back in 2015, they said basically with a hundred million dollar investment that the legislature would, you know, have to have to um, agree to. They had a plan to get broadband everywhere in Minnesota, but by the time it got to be 2015, the DFL lost the House of Representatives in Minnesota, and the Republicans in the House they decided to set aside exactly zero dollars for broadband expansion. And um, they caught so much heat from it, for it, uh, from small towns uh, mostly um, that, that were really criticizing them. And, and they were surprised because, you know, they thought that they had rural Minnesota at that point. But rural Minnesota really got angry at, at uh, the Minnesota GOP. So they felt pressured enough to put some money aside. So they decided to put $10 million, one-tenth of the amount that was needed. So uh, that's just a good example of how the DFL had a really good plan to help rural Minnesota and farmers in Minnesota. And they, but they didn't talk about it well enough. And um, that brings me into this whole messaging problem. I think it for one thing, I think it's easier for Republicans to do messaging just because of the dynamics of of uh, it's it's again it's conservative versus progressive. I think um, the and this is kind of an old adage. Everyone knows that the Democrats try to explain everything, and the Republicans just come up with a name for it. You know the the death tax. 
the the Democrats are saying, well, you know, if somebody if a if a multimillionaire uh, dies and gives his whole estate to his children, the children should have to pay taxes on it. Well, the the they ex- while they're explaining that the Republicans are saying, oh, they want a death tax. They want to tax you when you die. And which one is easier to react to and which one is easier to understand, even though it might not be an accurate description, when they say the Democrats want to tax you to die, you're going to probably want to vote against that. Um, now, uh, there are obviously a lot of people who are like, OK, that doesn't sound right. I need to look into that and see the validity of that information. And that's why it becomes difficult to um, – to talk about these these complicated measures, I just talked about the broadband um, task force from 2014. I consolidated the explanation a lot more than a lot of people do, but I still didn't do a, a very good job. Uh, uh, earlier this week, there was a little bit of a back and forth between Representative Ilhan Omar and President Barack Obama. President Barack Obama criticized the terminology of defund the police and – uh, very few people are actually saying defund the police. They're most – really what it is is reform the police. There are a lot of good ideas. The, the people who are talking about and, – and there was a, a uh, just yesterday I think a, a big uh, town meeting where I think over 400 people virtually signed in. And people are saying we need to take money away from the police and put it toward things like mental health um, and and other ways of of responding to emergencies, and I agree that more money needs to be put to other things for for reform. But uh, I know a lot of small again small business owners in places like North Minneapolis who don't want to defund the police. They want the police for protection. Um, these are even uh, a lot of minority owned. Uh, businesses. I know a lot of the uh, the problem that obviously exploded this summer was was racism inside uh, the police force because it seems like well it, it more than seems like it's definitely a, a fact that uh, uh, minorities are treated completely different than uh, white people are by the police and um, not all police. But some, and that's what happened with the George Floyd, and there are many other incidences to talk about with that. But I know of a lot of minority-owned small business owners who don't want to defund the police. Yes, they want reform. We need to get rid of uh, this insane um, – uh, what is it called? Um, uh, warrior training. This is something that I think most people didn't even know existed until this summer. And that's just absurd that police get warrior training. We also need to stop, uh, you know, taking all of our outdated military supplies and providing it for the police. Anyway, getting back to the terminology, um, Barack Obama basically said that he thinks it might have even hurt some elections by using the term defund the police. And Representative Ilhan Omar criticized him for saying that. She said it's not just a slogan. It's an actual thing. And it is, but I think we need to find some some uh, ground in the middle there. We can't just yell a slogan that is uh, when, when the uh, problems that need to be solved are more complicated than that. So we need to Democrats need to find a better way of messaging. Um, Republicans need to do a little bit more explaining instead of just yelling slogans. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of people listening here may agree with me. Um, but uh, 
let's talk about going to a break. I have some more things I'd like to get to, and I tend to talk too long on one subject. So let's take a break, and when we come back, um, uh, the phone call to call in is 952-946-6205. You're listening to AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We'll be right back. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Uh, I'm Todd Mickelson sitting in for Brett Johnson on today's FYI Politics. And I'd like to compliment Brett on his uh, music, taste in music. I love the bumper music that this show has. I hate to talk on – I'm listening to it and then I'm like, OK, I've got to remember that I'm supposed to talk now. And I don't know. I I think a lot of people would uh, like to listen to the music. But uh, – Last segment, we were talking about the broadband uh, spreading to Minnesota. Here's an interesting tidbit from 1936. I know uh, last week I talked a lot about how what I think uh, we need to do to move forward is we need to do the things that we know will work. Uh, it, it's happened before, it happened when, when the DFL had charge, uh, like I said, in uh, 2013 and 14 legislatures. They turned a $6 billion deficit into a $2.6 billion surplus with basically mostly just one tax maneuver that was very successful. And you never hear Republicans complaining about that. You also never hear Republicans complaining about things like Social Security, which were extremely radical ideas when they were new. Um, but now we just we just accept it because it works well. One thing that – another thing uh, in the 1940s, uh, another thing that FDR did, it was called the Rural Electrification Act and it happened in 1936. And prior to that, only about 3 percent of farmhouses in the country had electricity. And uh, that's kind of a wild thing to think about. It was less than 100 years ago and almost no farms had electricity. And the Rural Electrification Act of 1936 was passed and it basically spread electricity to all the nooks and crannies of the country. We need to do that now with broadband. So uh, I think when, when we look at how things were done in the past, we can learn how to go and do them into the future. Um, now, uh, I also like to there, – there's some really – a lot of bad news going on. I, I always try and find some good news within the bad news. Uh, really bad numbers coming out right now with the pandemic. I'm getting to know more and more people. For a long time, I didn't know anybody who got sick or tested positive. And now I know probably 20 people who have tested positive. Um, my own brother got very sick uh, he, he never had to go to the hospital, but he was miserable for over two weeks, and he's just now starting to feel better. I know a lot of other friends who are testing positive left and right, and they're staying home, and some of them are you know, having all kinds of different uh, – there's an, insomnia problems. Um, even, the, even the people who aren't having really serious reactions or, or uh, uh, symptoms – still have symptoms that are making them absolutely miserable, much more than anything they've had in the past. So wear your masks. Masks do work. Wear them and be very careful. Stay home. 
but there's also some good news in that pres- uh, president-elect Biden met today with uh, Dr. Fauci, and it sounds like Dr. Fauci is going to be a part of the Biden plan to fight this pandemic. And there's also some good news about vaccines. Uh, right now in Britain, they're already going to start uh, vac- vaccinating people. Um, it's going to take a little longer here. It's We're just starting FDA approval, um, but that's supposed to get sped up. There's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, the possibility of even by the end of this year, which means the end of this month, us being able to start to vaccinate some people. Um, it's hard to hard to know what numbers are accurate at this point, but there's also a lot of good news coming out about the pandemic. It looks like maybe next year, well, next year will definitely be better than this year, but uh, possibly quite a bit better. Now, um, When we come back, I'm going to talk about another subject that everybody was talking about about a month ago. And I really think that it's going to be talked about in about two or three months again. And I think it's going to be a really big subject. And it has to do with the Supreme Court. So – oh, and mentioning Supreme Court, one last tidbit of good news before we go to this break. The All the shenanigans going on with uh, Trump trying to say that there's all this fraud in the election. I don't know if you heard the, the crazy drunk woman from Michigan. Uh, there were clips on – I saw on Twitter and stuff, a bunch of clips of this of this crazy drunk woman. There, there was some farcical uh, hearing that, that Rudy Giuliani put – got going and some legislators from Michigan showed up for it. There was no swearing in or anything like that. So it wasn't an official hearing. But there was this crazy drunk woman and she was even the, – the Republican legislators were even scared of her. She wouldn't let anyone talk. At one point, you know, the guy said, no, there was we, – we're not going to find 30,000, uh, you know, fraudulent ballots. And, and she's like, why? What did you do? Did you take it and do something weird with it? She's – you know, you could tell that she was pretty drunk. If she wasn't drunk, then, then that's a even bigger problem. But uh, that crazy show was supposed to come to Wisconsin. And be put forth to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin, is is uh, pretty conservative. But they basically said, "Nope, nope, stay home, Rudy. You're not bringing this into our state." So the state Supreme Court, um, they they were asked to hear these cases, and they just said, "Nope, we're not going to hear them." So that's good news. I think uh, you know, slowly but surely, we're going to get rid of this voice and uh, and come up with some better voices. So again, when we come back, let's talk a little bit about the Supreme Court. You're listening to AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Yeah, the funky sounds. The funky sounds, the funky beats of FYI politics here on AM 950. The progressive voice of Minnesota. I'm Todd Mickelson sitting in for Brett Johnson today. Again, um, he's taking a few breaks from politics. I don't blame him at all. Uh, We could all use some breaks and hopefully uh, we won't be hearing from the president every day of the week when we get our new president in the White House. 
So we were going to talk about the Supreme Court. About a month ago, if you remember, there was a lot of talk about packing the Supreme Court when uh, uh, when uh, Amy Coney Barrett got uh, put onto the Supreme Court. There was a lot of talk that, oh, Joe Biden's going to pack the Supreme Court. And it's that terminology came because actually we, we talk about FDR a little earlier. FDR was trying to do something a little bit nefarious with the Supreme Court because he was unhappy with some rulings. The Supreme Court was was not going to rule in his favor on some things he wanted to do. So he was threatening to put more people on the Supreme Court and the Republicans – that's when they came up with this terminology of packing, quote-unquote, the Supreme Court. In reality, if you go through the history from the uh, very beginning of the history of this country, you would see why it shouldn't be called packing the Supreme Court. Uh, it's just that in the 20th century, the Supreme Court was one of the many institutions that were just basically not maintained and updated because throughout the century – the Republican and Democratic Party just became more and more divided and so did the country. So uh, the Supreme Court became a little bit you know, more political and we keep kicking the can down the road. But the history is very interesting. Originally in 1789, of course, is when we actually began as a real country. Uh, we had our first president, George Washington, and we had 13 states. They were British colonies but uh, we – we fought the uh, Revolutionary War and now we were our own country and we called them the United States. But they were still very much treated like separate states with their own separate uh, governors uh, – uh, governments. But this was for the first time. Now we had basically a federal government here in the United States. So Washington decided to split the 13 states into three areas, the North, the Central, and the South. And then they also created the Supreme Court at the same time, and they decided to have six justices, two for each area. So that's how they decided to – on the amount of Supreme Court judges, six justices, two for each area. And back then – they actually rode the circuits. So it was – they were also called circuit courts. Um, now, in 1807, President Jefferson and Congress, they added a seventh judge and that's because the country was growing. The area of the country was growing. We were getting more and more states and we were obviously getting more and more people as the population was growing. So we added a seventh federal court circuit, a seventh circuit court. So they also added a seventh judge to the United States Supreme Court. Again, it happened in 1834 and you can see here about every 20 or 30 years, they make a change because uh, the country is just growing and so they expanded to nine. There were now nine federal circuit courts that got expanded by President Andrew Jackson and Congress in 1834. So they added two more judges to the Supreme Court. That's where the number nine comes from and it correlated uh, with the amount of federal circuit courts. Now, the term circuit court comes from a bygone age when judges would ride the circuit to hear cases from around the district they were assigned to. There were separate circuit courts in each state as well. Uh, Abe, Abe Lincoln, he rode his circuit when he was a judge in Illinois uh, long before he was president. But uh, nationally, we had nine circuit courts. And um, quite a few years later then, 
the well, uh, another thing interesting about riding the circuits is it happened in the summer, and that's why the Supreme Court still doesn't hear cases in the summertime because. Uh, back in the old days, the summertime is when they rode their circuits. Of course, there were no cars. There weren't even trains for a lot of it. So they would ride around on horses or in buggies. And the only time to really to do that uh, reliably was in the summer. So basically, the Supreme Court didn't hear national cases in Washington, D.C. for the summer. They rode around and heard uh, different cases within each of their circuits. And finally, you know, that was just taking too long and it was, and there was too much put on the plate of the Supreme Court. So by 1891, finally, it was decided that um, the appellate courts would be created. And the appellate courts were basically the same as the circuit courts, but the but they had more power. They were able to hear appeals. That's why you hear the you know the Fourth Circuit Appe- Court of Appeals. That's the appellate courts. Those those uh, began in 1891, and there, of course, were nine appellate courts created, one for each circuit, and they're kind of interchangeable as to what they are. There's the there's the circuit appellate courts and there's the circuit courts, but there's an appellate court for each circuit. Now we have 13 circuit courts in the United States. So why do we not have 13 Supreme Court justices? We, we just, we've been kicking the can down the road. We haven't been taking the time that they used to throughout the, uh, the 19th century when they, they did it three or four different times. We haven't done it since. So there is a really good argument to be made for having 13 Supreme Court justices because it would directly correlate with the amount of 13 appellate or circuit courts in the United States. Um, again, I hope the Democrats take a lesson on maybe that's how you talk about that subject. Stop talk. Stop calling it packing the courts. It's not packing the courts. It's basically you know, updating the court for modern times to to correlate with the with the uh, amount of circuit courts. Um, anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. I always love history, and again, I believe that we can learn if we look back at how we did things, either right or wrong. We can uh, learn how to do it right. Now, it, we we seem to not be very good at that in this country, um, but uh, uh, the the pandemic, for instance, we're making the exact same mistakes that we made a little more than a hundred years ago, and we're having the exact same results. But um, I like to look back on uh, on history and see if we can learn how to do things right. Uh, there is a call coming in. What, this seems to be like I was a segue time anyway. So why don't we take a call from Deborah in Minneapolis? Hello, Deborah. Hi. Um, first, I would like to say that the Supreme Court in one of those years, that's why um, the president uh, divided North and South Dakota. So because he thought the Supreme Court was becoming too right wing. And also... I'm very proud of Ilhan Omar for speaking up, and uh, because um, the killing of people by the police, even um, even African American, I mean white people too, with um, for non-offensive um, crimes, and we've got more people locked up than any other country, and also the farmers. We should stop subsidizing the big agri. Farmers and the DFL should have helped on the foreclosures of the farmers in the first place. I think yep. we need a three and four.
party system, not this two. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, with a lot of what you're saying. the The three or four party system is very always very difficult to to maintain. Other countries who have it, um, you know, it, it ends up just being two sides anyway. Uh, you know, there whatever uh, parties. I, I kind of look at it as. Um, it's the progressives and it's the conservatives, um, and the progressives would also be called maybe liberals. But uh, more than a two-party, to me, it almost doesn't matter how many parties there are. There's always the two sides, and um, I don't necessarily disagree with you though on on the amount of parties and with the police. I. I'm proud of Ilhan Omar for speaking up as well. There needs to be change. I'm basically I'm I'm an older white guy who lives in the suburbs, and I'm scared of the police. And uh, you know when when did that start? You know um, I don't know, but so we shouldn't be afraid of our own police. But uh, there have been a lot of stories that make a lot of people afraid of the police. And again, it usually turns out to be a very few of the police that that are making the everybody look bad. But um, it's a very complex subject. It's been, again, uh, kicking the can down the road. It's uh, something that needs to be taken care of, and I think there's a lot of talk to be done on figuring out what to do. Um, not Certainly not enough time in this show, but I thank you very much for your call, Deborah. Thanks for listening, and uh, thanks for participating. Uh, I mentioned earlier that all of these shenanigans going on nationally about calling the election a fraud uh, – it's gotten absolutely crazy. I, I, I don't know if you saw. Of course, I, I mentioned the the crazy fake hearings that uh, Rudy Giuliani is getting put together. He did one in in uh, Pennsylvania that was it looked like a cult gathering. The lighting was really weird, and and um, and of course he had his uh, hair dye running down his face again. Um, then this one in in Michigan. At least they had a better venue and better lighting. But then they had this crazy drunk woman trying to tell all the legislators how crazy they were. And it, <laughs> and then Trump went on the air – or not on the air but on Facebook, this live Facebook event he did. He talked for something like 46 or 47 minutes and I saw a few clips from it and it's just absolutely nuts. I. I uh, I'd be interested to hear if there's a single person who made it through the whole 45 minutes, even even uh, reporters. I, you know, I mean, 45 minutes of this voice, I think we're done. And um, but anyway, I find it really interesting that it seems to have bled into local politics as well. Uh, now I know Steve Simon. I I ran for office years ago and got to know. Uh, Quite a few of the people who are in the legislature now and in other parts of of the uh, Minnesota government, I got to know Steve Simon pretty well. He he was um, very helpful uh, when I was a candidate. He was very helpful at, at uh, helping me get up and running. And I, I got to tell you, um, you know, you you say the nicest guy you've ever met. Steve Simon would really be. I'd have to really, you know. Go through my brain to come up with somebody who is a more nice and fair person. So to get his like gander up, I guess you could say on the radio, right? Um, to get Steve Simon uh, even in the slight bit pissed off is a pretty big task. Well, it was done by um, uh, Representative Mary Kiffmeyer. She actually was the Secretary of State years ago. I think something like 2004 to 2007, she knows how squeaky clean and, and uh, in, in good shape and safe and, 
and free from any kind of fraud Minnesota elections are. It was also proven in the famous recount back in 2008 with Al Franken and he ended up winning by I think uh, 300 and some votes or not even. It was less than that. It might have been like 30. Anyway, I don't know what I'm talking about with the numbers. doesn't matter. It was a really close election. There was a recount, and the numbers came out to be extremely close to what they originally were. Whenever there is a recount, and now we're seeing recounts all over the place in the country, we're finding that the original count was very, very close and that there is, in fact, no fraud going on. Um, There were a couple – uh, incidences of of fraud, and of course, it was uh, Republicans committing the fraud. Uh, one guy used the ballot of his of his dead son, I think. And um, so, anyway, uh, Mary Kiffmeyer now she sits on the committee, the elections committee here in the state of Minnesota, and she's basically saying that the the vote needs to be looked at again. Now, Steve Simon comes back and and he says, you know, what about all these counties, Aiken, Crow Wing, Dakota, uh, Monoman, Scott, Sherburn? Uh, They're they're all using the Dominion equipment, but uh, all of those, except for one, I think, went for Trump. So, you know, it's funny how they never question the counties that Trump won. They only questioned the counties that Trump lost. Um, Steve Simon went so far as to say there's, there's no credible evidence and anyone claiming otherwise is insulting the tireless work of election administrators across the state. And he says it's foolish and irresponsible claims are unworthy of attention. Nevertheless, if my answers to your questions can in any way stop this spread of misinformation, I'm happy to be helpful. Those are the most angry words that I know I've ever heard Steve Simon say anywhere, in public or private. Uh, Kiffmeyer, she goes on to say after uh, um, Secretary of State Simon makes these statements, she's going to have Senate hearings next week. Is that what we want? Is that how we want our uh, legislature to use their time? She's going to have hearings on the fraud of, of the election here in Minnesota. Uh, basically just copying what's going on nationally. I have no idea why they think this is going to help them. I think they're just trying to please their base. I think they're running scared. I I think they know that they can't win elections unless they do something to cheat. Um, There was cheating going on in – well, I I was going to say in my opinion, but it seems like it's been – proven because the facts are out there about uh, Republicans incentivizing people to run as third-party um, candidates. That's something that I wish we would look into. I'm trying to find out if maybe it will be looked into in the future. But um, how about if we take a break, we come back, and I want to go through a couple of sort of fun-to-go-through things that's good news for everybody except a very few amount of people. And the bad news is uh, – it belittles me to say is a pleasure to watch the bad news befall these certain people. So when we come back – uh, you can call in at 952-946-6205. We have very little time left, so I don't know if I'll be able to get to your call. But uh, you are listening to the Progressive Voice of Minnesota, AM 950. We'll be back in a minute. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We'll take one real quick call, Lynette from Chaska. If you can keep it short, we're running short on time. Hello, Lynette. Yeah. 
Yeah, hi, Todd. You were talking about the courts, and isn't it a, a, I think of it as balancing the court, and isn't it right now, like, if you're going to use the word packed, like the Republicans do, isn't it packed in the Republicans' favor? I mean, what's so fair about that? Exactly. I, I completely agree with you. It's funny how they don't notice that when they're using that term. Um, and they're the ones who also made up the term uh, activist judges. And it seems like the activist judges usually or, or almost always are on the conservative side. So I completely agree with you. Um, Thank you for that, Lynette. It looks like you're gone already, but um, uh, thanks very much for listening and uh, thanks for calling in. Here's some fun tidbits that just happened uh, kind of under the radar, not being reported all that much. Uh, A lot of people don't realize that Ivanka Trump – now, of course, Trump's acting for preemptive pardons for all of his children and – Ivanka Trump was deposed on Tuesday in D.C. by its attorney general on a case about the misuse of funds by the Trump inaugural committee. Now, this is completely separate from the thing we heard about already in New York State, the investigation about the Trump organization making allegedly illegal payments to Ivanka Trump, then writing it off for tax purposes. So Ivanka right now uh, seems like she's got two different cases against her, and preemptive pardons or even any pardon is not going to help her because uh, pardons only help the federal cases. Both of these are state cases. They're in in the state. The, uh, D.C. is not a state, but one of them's in D.C., one of them's in New York. Pardons can't get her out of anything. An- another interesting thing, uh, this Samuel Patton, uh, he was the head of the um, – uh, he, no, he, he was uh, convicted. He was already convicted. Uh, about illegal funneling money of foreign money, funneling of foreign money into the inaugural. Uh, he was already convicted, and now also Tom Barrick, who was deposed about two weeks ago on this case. He's, he was the head of the inaugural committee, and he's a huge Trump donor. And now Ivanka's pulled into this. And also we find out that Melania Trump has been subpoenaed on this case as well. Um, I think uh, – I don't know, the, the woman who came out with a book a couple months ago who used to be the friend of Melania, she was kind of the scapegoat on this. She was pulled in, I remember, this last summer or maybe even a year or two ago, and uh, it looked like she was being made the scapegoat. Well, now Melania Trump's been subpoenaed. Ivanka has been has given a deposition. So has Tom Barrick. It looks like this thing is uh, getting nasty very quick, and it looks like um, – News can be very interesting. You know, after after uh, Watergate, it took years. People were being thrown in jail for years after Watergate. Uh, the uh, man, a whole bunch of people, Don, Don Segretti, a um, uh, lawyer who paid Don Segretti, Herb Kalmack, also jailed were Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell. Uh, they all went to jail, and so did uh, President uh, let's see, counsels to the president, Charles Colson, John Ehrlichman, and White House legal counsel John Dean, and many others. They went to jail. So we're out of here, and we'll uh, Matt's in next. Do you believe in ghosts? Ever wondered if aliens from other planets visit the Earth? Have you ever thought about whether Bigfoot is